Marshall Gans, and welcome to Faces of Change, a new podcast series from the Leaving Change Network. We ask people who are practicing leadership to share their stories of enabling others to work together to create the power they need to win the change their communities want. It's easy to turn on the news and feel overwhelmed by all the obstacles we face, like the climate crisis that has caused the fires that are devastating large parts of Australia, the brink of war in the Middle East, the authoritarian challenges to democracy around the world. But there is hope. Throughout the world, people who have accepted responsibility for leadership, their communities and their allies are stepping up with courage, showing us that change is possible. But constructive change doesn't happen without purpose, craft, and organizing relational practices that link story, strategy, and structure in effective action. In Faces of Change, we explore how these people were called to leadership, how they organized their communities, and how they've begun building the power their people need to achieve real change. Today, we'll meet Art Reyes, the third, the executive director of We the People Michigan, a statewide multiracial community organization that's building people power for social and economic justice in Michigan. Their mission is to transform the politics of Michigan from the ground up, moving away from simply mobilizing around elections by embedding the organizing infrastructure needed for people to shape politics from their community up. In my conversation with Art, we'll learn how he grew up in one of the first large Mexican-American families that moved to Flint, Michigan in the 40s and 50s to work in the auto industry how he was called to organizing at an early age and is leading an innovative and challenging effort in one of the most segregated states in America. We talk about how mastery of the organizing craft grows from sustained learning across diverse domains, issues, and communities, and what it takes for people to mobilize the power they need to shape their communities, their politics, and their future. Uh, we had some technical difficulties when reporting this episode, so we apologize in advance for any sound quality issues. But I'm sure you will enjoy Art's story. So let's get started. Art, good to see you. Yeah, you too. Could you say a few words about the work of We the People is that you're leading right now? What are you trying to do? Yeah. So in short, We the People Michigan is trying to transform the politics of our state. Um, and we're trying to do that in ways that are rooted in the experiences of our communities across the state. And so when I think about Michigan, there's a couple of challenges that I think have inhibited our ability to build strong organizing capacity, right? One is that we are an important electoral state. And so we have built robust temporary electoral mobilizing capacity that sees people not as a constituency, but as bodies and numbers to be moved around. And that I think ultimately really hurts us. And two, we're one of the most segregated places in the United States in combination with having multi-generational economic devastation in places like Detroit, Flint, Benton Harbor, Pontiac, which are almost entirely people of color. But we also have had multi-generational economic devastation in the Upper Peninsula and big rural parts of the state. And so we've created some fertile ground for dividing conquer politics that tells some communities in pain the reason for your pain is because of these other communities that are also struggling. And so for us, it really means that we have to build legitimate multiracial working class community organizing infrastructure that's rooted in the leadership um, in in communities where they're able to fight on the issues that are important to them, but then also link across and build trust and relationships with each other. 
So you have an appetite for easy challenges. <laughs> yeah. You said uh, about electoral significance. For folks listening that aren't familiar, uh, could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. You know, so Michigan is a state in the Midwest. Um, it is often a place that people see as being very important in determining national elections. So, for instance, in 2016, Michigan was the closest state. Donald Trump carried Michigan by less than 11,000 votes. Um, and so right now for 2020, uh, Michigan is seen as like one of the most important states for defeating Donald Trump. And that's a thing that we're very invested in, defeating Donald Trump. But there's a difference in driving election work that's rooted in the leadership of constituencies within a place than it is in doing kind of paid media airwave assaults or paying kind of uh, electoral mercenaries, for lack of a better term, to kind of pop in and just do quick conversations on doors with people um, that actually treat our people as bodies and numbers. And I think for me, the result of that, when I think about organizing capacity, has been we've built sand castles. And sometimes they are big and they are beautiful and they are expensive. But at the end of the day, after the election cycle, they're washed away. And what we have to focus on is building foundations so that we're actually contending for the values that our communities hold to be reflected in our politics, not that our people are used um, for, for electoral gains. It sounds like, like some of what you're saying is that the organizing doesn't end with the election. It really begins with the election because what matters is what comes next. And without any organization beyond the election, there isn't any way to, to, to get what happens. Completely. Next. And I think for me, one of the things that's really important is that oftentimes, I think this is prevalent kind of in um, kind of progressive spaces or advocacy organizing spaces across the United States. Communities are seen as instrumental for election. It's actually the other way around. Elections are instrumental for building power for our communities. And so it's not election only or election first. It is actually what we're doing is we're contending for power for our communities who have been incredibly marginalized in many cases. And elections are one key component of that. But if we're only focused on seeing our communities as instrumental for an election, we don't build leadership, we don't build structure, and we don't build things that last. We build sandcastles. Yeah, but what about you? How'd you get all this? How did you get started? Yeah. In some ways, there's a whole lot that I learned from my family growing up about the importance of working people kind of standing up and demanding dignity. You know, my family were migrant workers that came from Texas and they came to Flint in the 1940s and 50s. So I grew up in Flint, Michigan. And at that point, when my family was coming up, Flint was this beacon of hope for working people. So for those who, who don't know a ton about uh, American labor history, a few years prior to that, Flint had been the, the home of the Flint sit-down strike, which was an incredibly important moment in American labor history that broke open the ability for workers to unionize in an industrial space. So that what that meant for my family was that there were union jobs that allowed them to experience stability, union wages, be able to take care of a family, being able to own a home. Um, and so those were things that drew my family to Flint because it was very much the speak and vote for working people. Um, when I was growing up, it was beginning to shift. So in the 1950s, Flint was the highest per capita income city in the country. 
which is kind of crazy to think about today uh, because today it is the single poorest city in America. And it was in the 80s um, and there was a whole lot of changes beginning to happen. The kind of first big waves of layoffs and then plant closures. And then for me, this kind of sense of Flint as a hopeful place really eroding. Um, So I was growing up during a real clash between the narrative that my family held on to, that Flint was an example of Michigan, was an example of our society where working people had a fighting shot at dignity and at stability and at being able to have decent wages. And I was growing up at a time where that was completely crumbling. That just wasn't the reality around me. You know, but I also, I grew up in a family that was very active in their union, that was very clear um, that the reason Flint was a beacon of hope for working people was because working people fought for it and demanded it. Um, And I was also a little bit of a union hall rat. So I always was at my dad's, my dad's UAW local. My dad, he eventually was president of that local for almost a decade. I went everywhere with my dad. The plant that he worked at used to be the old spark plug plant. And so for a period, most of the workers were women because it was the small parts facility. And so the retirees at his local were overwhelmingly women. And so I was hanging out with a bunch of retired UAW women who had a clear sense of their own agency in the face of power, because when they were coming up, it was the Flint sit-down strike. And there was, a, there was one in particular who's a member of my dad's local, uh, this woman, Geraldine, who was 15 years old. Her father was one of the organizers, and she signed up and joined the Women's Emergency Brigade, which saw themselves as the militant wing of the women's auxiliary that saw themselves as instrumental in winning the sit-down strike were a ragtag group of workers, brought the most powerful corporation in the world at the time to its knees to win dignity in the workplace. And they had that swagger, right? They had that like sense that like, this is possible because we've done it. Like we here in this place and us as individuals, like we were part of this. And so, you know, I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a family, in a community of fighters um, during a time where we need a whole lot of fight, you know? So I think for me, it was a, in a lot of cases growing up in Flint, growing up in a place of transition and also growing up, um, you know, in a family and community that understood what it looked like to come together and demand something better. But Art, wouldn't a lot of your peers looked at that situation and said, where's the future? Uh, and tried to get out of there as quick as they could. Mm-hmm. So what happened there? It seems like you had a very different reaction. Yeah. I appreciate the question, Marshall, because I, you know, I think frankly, that a lot of a lot of folks did. You know, I think for me when I was growing up, you know, Flint was kind of in a very challenging place. And so my parents uh, decided to move us to a trailer park uh, in the suburbs. So I went to public schools. Um, in a community called Grand Blank, um, where I, I learned to be a chameleon. I got very good at fitting in and being liked, but never felt like I ever really fit in anywhere because, you know, I was I was this kind of like poor kid going into the schools that were wealthier and kind of always wanting to mask the fact that like we lived in the trailer park. <laughs> and so, but but what it also did is I grew up with then as I you know, grew older with a chip on my shoulder that like, wait a minute, why, why did we have to cross a municipal line to have access to better schools and opportunity when everything that I'm hearing from my family is that this is the type of society where working people have a shot, where you know, everybody can, it doesn't matter if you come from the fields or you come from the factory, like you have a shot to advance. And I was just saying very clearly that like there was a real difference between 
my two communities, um, you know, between what people had in Flint, what people had from Grand Blank. And, I, you know, I was pissed off about it. When did that get real for you? Because, you know, we tend to grow up the way we grow up, but it seems like at some point the difference or the tension became real for you. When, when did that happen? I think it was as I was finishing and graduating high school and you know, had an opportunity to go off to college. And, you know, I think at that point, like I was interested in a lot of this stuff from a very active family, all that stuff. My trajectory at that point when I was younger was very much like I was interested in politics. Like I was going to uh, run for office right after I graduated. And there was like, I got reinforced constantly around that. Where did you get that bug? Why, why politics? You know, I think, I think for me, the UAW family that I grew up in, part of the way in which they were really active was fighting on, on, on fights that were happening within the local with the company, but also engaging in local politics in Flint. I mean, I've, I've been knocking doors since I was four years old because my dad would jack me out there. And so would my grandparents to go and like knock on doors for candidates the UAW had endorsed because we support those that support us. <laughs> when, I was, when I was younger, I actually interned and then worked for Congressman Dale Kildee, who represented Flint for over 30 years. And he would always tell me the story of his first run in the 70s. My, my grandma, he called her the bumper sticker queen. She worked at, at, one, of the, at one of the plants at the time. She worked at AC. <laughs> she... What, how she volunteered is she just took a big stack of Kildee bumper stickers and put them on every single car <laughs> in the lot at the plant. And so he was like, boy, you drove around Flint that campaign. And it seemed like every person in the city was a Kildee supporter because your grandma put them on every single car. So, I mean, I grew up around it a lot. And then I got a lot of, you know, reinforcement, I think, in a lot of things. You know, I like was active and, you know, was kind of uh, participated in school government. I was kind of the kid who was like perpetually the class president. My first my first run was in fifth grade. I ran for for, oh. for class president. So when I was a kid, my dad ran for the local school board um, and what and got elected to the local school board in Flint. So he was elected to the school board, and then and then I did watch him, you know, run for office within the union. So um, and I really you know looked up looked up to him to learn a lot of these yeah these lessons. You know, it's interesting because sometimes when folks grow up in such an intense environment where there's so much going on, so much activism, they want nothing. They want nothing more to do with that. It's sort of like they go the opposite direction. But it sounds like you embraced it. And I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering why. I think for me, there was there was a few things. You know, I, I really felt like I was I was also raised in some ways by my entire family, by my community. You know, my parents were very young when I was born. Like I said, my mom was. I was born as my mom was finishing her junior year of high school. You know, my great grandmother um, watched me most days and she was very good at telling stories. She would, you know, tell me stories of what it was like, you know, when she was um, growing up in Texas um, in a segregated town where there were signs in some restaurants that said no Mexicans and no dogs. And she, you know, she would tell me a lot of these types of uh, stories. And I remember she used to tell me, Mijito, you're an American first, um, which, you know, in a lot of ways was her way of telling me that this country was just as much mine as it was anyone else's. And I would hear stories like that. And I would see, you know, my dad really fighting. And, I, you know, I would see like just some of the strength that I think a lot of my family exhibited during real times of challenge. And I, I really latched onto it. And I think in particular, when I was, when I was, when I was younger, you know, I went to all of the union meetings with my dad and I sat there and I like listened and like it, it, it became something where I like also felt, I felt community. I felt like this is important, right? Like this is like, and it was, it was happening in the context of like real challenge and struggle too. Like that, like 
watching people lose work, watching a bunch of my family lose jobs and either move away or struggle, um, you know, it, it was the sense that like, we're fighters. Like we step up and fight because this is what's important. And we do this for our community. And I, I think as I, as I, as I, you know, grew up and grew a little bit older too, I also really grew to just appreciate my mom's strength and resilience um, and seeing what that, you know, looks like. Cause my, you know, my mom, like I said, I was born when she was very young. Her, her mom, my grandma, Ann uh, passed away when I was, I was four. Um, I think she was 38. She died of lung cancer. Um, my mom's dad wasn't really a part of her life growing up. Um, and she had nobody, <laughs> you know, she had her and my dad split up when they were, you know, I was pretty young. She had me and my sister, but she fought so hard all the time to make sure that like we were taken care of. My family and my, my community are fighters, right? And I think like I wanted to also be a part of that, right? Because that's important. Like it's important for us to like be yeah. a part of like stepping up and fighting for the things that we, we deserve. It sounds like along with all the fight and activism, there was also a whole lot of love. 100%, 100% love and like enjoy. We talk about that a lot in our work right, right, right now, but I also have seen that a lot like in my family. You know, I think in the work that I'm doing now and in the organizing work that we're doing, like joy is really important, you know, in this because like, fr- frankly, yeah. like if, 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 if there's not love and joy in the work that we're doing, it's like too hard to sustain day in and day out because of the struggles that so many of our communities are going through. Oh, it comes through. It comes through in so much. And I'm sure that comes through to the people that you're working with, too. Uh, I mean, serious fight. There's a lot of sacrifices, a lot of risk. But unless there's the other heart resources to sustain that, you, you run out of steam. People often ask, why don't you burn out? Well, unless there's those sources of renewal, which, you, which you're describing, it seems really, really important. Yeah. But we left, you, we left you leaving high school and going into college. Can we go pick up back <laughs> yeah. there? Yeah, I think a lot throughout college too. I was very much on like a politics track. I did some work with the UAW with their political arm in the state. And I was working on Congressman Kildee's kind of last campaigns. You know, I think for me, that was very much kind of my my trajectory. I got I very active on college with some you know radical labor on, on campus and doing some Latino student stuff. But I think there was a moment when like, for me, it really shifted from politics to organizing where I kind of felt like I caught the organizing bug. I mean, the real story, right, is that I had an overdue library book and I couldn't pay the fine. So I didn't get to register for classes when I wanted to. And so I didn't get into this. There was a class that I wanted to take. It was Afro-Cuban bongo drumming, a small class. And I didn't, you know, it filled up fast. And because I didn't get to register on time, I didn't take it. So I was like, ugh. all right, I'll take this community organizing class instead. And so there was this community organizing class the whole part of the class is you didn't, you did, you were actually organizing, right? It wasn't just, you were learning about organizing, you were organizing. So I was interning, I was commu- I was in Ann Arbor at the time, I went to the University of Michigan, and I was commuting back up to Flint, interning with an organization at the time called FACT, Flint Area Congregations Together. And I remember being at a, like a listening meeting in the basement at Quinn Chapel AME, which is a church on the south side of Flint, um, and Washington Nika, who's one of the organizers, 
like facilitate uh, a conversation with with some and I knew some of the some of the women there because they were retirees and my dad's local watching her facilitate a group of people in the church and pushing them on like what the problems were that we're facing but what are we going to do about it no one's going to save us there's not any what are we going to do about it I just, I watched the craft of that. I think for me, there was really something that just clicked because it was like all the stuff that I was watching my family do and like all of the lessons I was learning from, it wasn't some like magic politician waved a wand and like solved thing. And I think we were falling into that trap a lot in my community at that time because people were really struggling. And there's a whole lot of the savior mentality. If only we like this person or if only GM doesn't close down this plan or if only we get work in this facility, things are going to be better. And it just, it's bullshit. I think for me, it was like, it was pulling back that like, this is, this is like all the things that I've known learning and growing up, right. It's, it's up to us. That's like, it's only if like we are the ones who drive it. And I, you know, I caught the organizing bug, you know, and I think that reflected in like my campus organizing and activism and rebuilding the Latino students organization on campus. And I just, I caught the organizing bug, right. And I've been on that track, you know, ever since. So you, you reorganized the Latino student group. How did that surface? Yeah. I think when I was in college, part of it was like looking for looking for community, you know, wanting space to like dig into identity too. You know, my family was like one of the earlier big Mexican families that came to Flint. And so I grew up in like a big Mexican family, but it wasn't, you know, I didn't grow up in a Mexican community. You know, I lived in black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods and you know, mostly went to white schools when we moved to Grand Blanc. A bunch of my, you know, be, being a product of like being one of the first big, you know, Mexican families in, in the Flynn area, right? Like my grandparents would get like hit in school for speaking Spanish. And so they didn't teach my dad's generation that like a bunch of my, all of my, you know, my uncle, aunts and uncles and everything, like they had, you know, they had like their you know, Americanized names like Theo Barney and Theo Albert and Theo Paul and like all of, you know, all of these, you know, those, those things, but like intensely proud, like intensely proud family of like our identity and heritage. My family had also been, been farm workers, um, some of them. And so I also grew up like, you know, the farm workers movement was really lionized in my family. I think my, my Theo Paul, he was the first uh, Latino city council person in Flint. What, one of the things that he did that he was so proud of is Flint was the first city in the country to name a street after Cesar Chavez. And it's, it was interesting. Like he told me the backstory is an interesting story of racial politics um, because the council was half black and half white. And then my Theo Paul um, and he said like him and members of the, of the, um, of um, like black members of the city council were working together to get Martin Luther King Boulevard um, named in Flint. And he said, um, he said, we had, we had the votes to do that. And I, I went to them and I said, I want to also do Cesar Chavez Boulevard. And they were like, okay, but we're going to have to, we need one of the white votes in order to get it. And so um, at least the way that he told me the story <laughs> is that they threatened to name one of the streets that went through the white part of town, Martin Luther King Boulevard, because they had the votes to do that. And if they didn't do both of them at the same time, then they, so it's like an interesting story of racial politics in the eighties, but you know, Flint was the, was the first, was the first. Um, was the first city to do that and you know and Caesar came to the came to like the the thing and it's like a very it's like a very proud moment for my family it's like a picture of my great my great grandfather sitting with Caesar you know it's that's like a big thing and it's different because we're part of like this like you know it's almost like a lost story in like you know kind of Chicano history of like the early waves of like 
are the different waves of migration that happen in places like of folks who like, you know, our, our identity is really there and strong, but like, you know, we're not growing up in communities that are Latino, yeah. right? And so there's a lot of things around like loss of language and really? all that type of stuff. So that was important to me in, in, in college. And we were also, you know, in the midst of, um, you know, the affirmative action ban happened while I was in, while I was in school that hit a lot of the, you know, a lot of the organizers of color on campus pretty hard. We saw immediately the kind of enrollment numbers for students of color, like declining. So you're yeah. starting your junior year and this crap comes down. Mm-hmm. You're already involved in the Latino students or not. Mm-hmm. Yep. What shifts, when did it shift in a significant way? For, for me, you know, coming to the University of Michigan, like as like a kid who grew up in the union halls in Flint and like was from a working class family, like I didn't realize like that that was an unusual ex- experience, right? Coming into, you know, a relatively elite institution yeah. like the University of Michigan. I think for me growing up how I did in Flint, like I, I totally learned to be a chameleon. Huh. Um, and that that was like, I mean, that was a defense mechanism, right? By like when we moved to the trailer park in the suburbs, like I could go to those schools. Yeah. For me, it was rooted in anxiety, right? It was like, I didn't want to be the kid who like didn't fit in, who was poor, you know, like that, like there was all, like all of those things. And in part, right, it was like being like a kid from a proud Mexican family and really like, like being proud of my identity, but also like never being in a community that like was that identity, right? I was like in, black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods, mostly white schools, like, you know, and so uh, there was some of it where, you know, a thing that I think has turned out to be a useful skill, but I think was really rooted in like social anxiety was like, I gotta figure out how to fit in. When does that shift for you? As, you know, I was in college, I think there's a lot of experiences that began to really, for that to shift and, and, and break open a bit. I mean, I actually do think like some of it was rooted in like seeing, like being frustrated with the way that things were. The affirmative action ban actually was one of those moments where it was like, look, like there are barely any Latino students here at this institution in general. Yeah. Like there's not that many black students who are here. Like we were building all this stuff. And then it felt like an assault as I was getting politicized and as they were evolving, like, I feel like I found like strength in like my own voice and owning who I was and like standing firmly in that. I was really proud of the work that we were doing with the Latino student organization and rebuilding that organization. And for me, it was about like building a home for people on campus. I think for me, I think like some of the mentality that I have as an organizer that is like, it's actually not just about like us in the moment. It's about whether or not we're able to, if our, our leadership is about like developing the next layers of leadership, they're going to carry something forward. It sounds like there's this uh, deep interrelation between your sort of coming into a greater sense of your own voice and the community that you were building within which to do that. Because you're talking before about being in a Mexican family, but not in a Mexican community. Now it seems like you're building a community. And in the process, finding much more of your own voice. Is that a miss? Is that not a? No, that- I, 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 think, I think a lot of that, I think a lot of that is true. I also like think like, you know, there's a, there's a combination of things that I think were going on. Like that very much was true. But it was also true that it was like the first time that I was like in college, the first time that I was like 
actually grappling with the strength that like my parents had and my family had and like the struggle that we had gone through. I did this program that I, like when I first got to college called the Michigan Community Scholars Program. It was pretty intentionally diverse. It was rooted in like service learning. And we all had to take an intergroup dialogue class talking about identity. It was really, really fascinating because it was the first time that I was like reflecting on my identity and like where I was coming from and the complication around my identity. And it wasn't just like I'm blending or fitting in or just, you know, trying to conform to other, like I was actually exploring like myself. And I think there was a lot of cases like from there where I was able to articulate like all of the things that like we went through as I was, you know, growing up and the challenges we went through from having like, you know, being born to a high school junior, my mom, but like seeing like her, strength and resilient like actually starting to live into like wait a minute like that's actually that's given me so much and having some of these conversations for the first time about like race and identity and also grappling with the fact that like wait the vast majority of you that are here are like white and you grew up like all your parents are professionals they're like doctors and lawyers and like there was a lot of those things that like I think for me was also you know, at the time, a little bit of the bravado was kind of like being like, you know, you all, you all had all these advantages and like, I'm still here. And like, I'm, you know, like, so there was like some of that, I think that like I was coming into some of my, my own, my own voice there. And then it was, it, it allowed me then later to actually reflect on some of the experiences that I had growing up, just appreciate like some of the, the things that I, I had gone through and that my family went through to like shape the character and values that I have. So, so when you graduated, then what? I graduated. I moved to St. Louis. I did this thing called a Coro Fellowship. I had already kind of started to like feel an identity as an organizer, right? From this experience. Huh. Um, the Coro Fellowship, I like learned about it um, and was like enamored with like the, like, it's like you get to see so many different things and expose all these different yeah. things. And, but it's all also rooted in the theory of, in a theory of inquiry. You didn't do research on, you like learned through like having to ask questions and yeah. put in, situations that were like pretty intense for instance our political placement i was told okay go home and pack your bags you're going to drive six hours to the other side of the state and you're going to go work on this state rep campaign you're going to meet her in rural missouri you're going to meet her at the at the mcdonald's and she'll tell you about your living arrangements drive out there um and she's like hey we got the rv in our backyard set up like you're staying there i was like all right cool let's do this i'm like it was like, I, you know, having no idea what you were jumping into, but like having to adapt and figure it out. Like I, I loved that. I loved the yeah. pressure of it. I loved the like, you know, the like high stakes. And I loved like that, like we got to explore relationally, right? Like I could thrive in that type of environment. I, I loved the choral framework. I loved the like discipline of it, you know, getting put into all of these different situations where it was like, you got to produce, right? Like, yeah. You know, and I think for me, a lot of it was like, uh, you know, I had the scrappiness of like, I can figure stuff out. I'll make it, I can make it work. I worked for a place called Surwick, the Southern Illinois Regional Wellness Center is a federally qualified health center in FQHC. Mm-hmm. It had a big impact on me because I was going to East St. Louis, which was like incredibly marginalized on the, on the Illinois side. Yeah. Like it felt, it felt like home, <laughs> you know, it was like, this is a place that just has been like shit on. But it was also just like 
seeing the level of marginalization that a community like East St. Louis like was facing. And it, it, it like reminded me of Flint. You know, I wrote a poem, like out of, I'd like, I'm not a poet, but I remember like writing a poem about my experience there. You, know? you remember, you remember any of the lines? I do actually, I'll read it to you. I, I like, it was my very first placement and it like really, really connected with me. It was called, the poem was called Last Thursday. Last Thursday, I stood on the banks of the Mississippi River and I observed the undeniable aesthetics of the metallic facade of capitalist success shoved in and around the symbolic gateway to American expansion. I gazed on from a piece of America that was left behind, left behind to look at what it is not, what it was not, and for all intents and purposes, what it will never be. And I thought of home. I thought of the deep chasms that exist in more places than one in our society of the brave and the free that divide those of us who have from those of us who have not, while the have not stand gasping for air, gasping for hope, and gasping for reasons they should not gawk at the symbolic gateway they gaze at across the river. I met a lady with six toes on two feet because she had not the resources, nor the knowledge, nor the know-how to get the insulin her body needs to thrive so she does without. I heard of a 12-year-old child who yearned the growth of a fetus inside her womb because her ability to dream beyond East St. Louis, beyond poverty, beyond this despair, was so damaged that her American dream was to become not a lawyer, not a doctor, but a mother. And so next month, the child will be born to a preteen mother to dream the same dreams in our broken society. Yet I have hope in the concept of opportunity and the idea of the American dream, that if you work hard, play by the rules, eat your vegetables, you too can ascend to the top. But there are those who must walk through fire and climb barbed wire fence after barbed wire fence just to get a glimpse of the slope, then fight to have the energy to climb. So on Friday afternoons, when I drive over the Poplar Street Bridge into that glistening arch headed for Saturday, I know the community at my back is stuck in last Thursday on the banks of the Mississippi River just watching. Wow. Wow. And like it was a, it was a placement that was important because I was like seeing a community that like I wasn't a part of. Yeah. But I like related to very deeply. <laughs> and yeah. like it the feeling of home was very present there. So you finished Coro and then what? I finished Coro and I went back home. I went back home and I um and I started working for Michigan Voice. And Michigan Voice was a progressive network organization. So we were driving like a coalition of progressive organizing groups across the state. Um, and a lot of my work, um, you know, it evolved over time, but a lot of my work was really focused on kind of beginning to build voter engagement and, and then organizing capacity with organizations that were really rooted um, in, in communities across Michigan. And what kept you there? My interest was in like being in neighborhoods, um, in communities that like felt like they'd been completely ignored. And so I started doing a lot of work with local organizations in Flint and Detroit, and Grand Rapids and other places across the state, building relationships with them and starting to, um, for me, starting to build some like analysis around like, well, wait a minute, like there's a whole lot of organizations that kind of sweep in and out of communities during an election cycle. And there are actually a bunch of organizations that are rooted in these neighborhoods that maybe haven't done organizing before, but like they have trust and they have relationships and like we should be working to kind of build their capacity. And so I was really focused on, on, on doing um, a, lot of, a lot of that work. Um, and 
I think I really kind of got deepened in doing that after, you know, getting challenged by a lot of um, elders in the community, by some folks who really took me under their wing, um, who I learned a lot from. I think there was one moment that was a pretty, it was an important push for me. I was doing a training for, for a bunch of organizations that we were working with to organize their communities around the census. Um, and so I was up there, I was given a good presentation. I, you know, I had a knack for doing some of the training and could connect with people and some of that. So I was feeling really good about it. Like, all right, I'm, I'm like, I'm moving here. I'm like, I'm, I'm feeling good about how I'm doing at the front of the room. Um, and you know, there was a, a, a lady who was probably in her sixties, um, maybe a little older, raised her hand in the back of the room. You know, she said, uh, I appreciate you. Like you're doing a really good job, but I have a question. She said, I have lived in my house for 40 years on the same block. I've done every census. I've voted in all of the elections and I have seen nothing in my neighborhood, but things get worse mm-hmm. for 40 years. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the kind of more, more houses vacant and empty, um, more problems with addiction, more challenges to people unemployed and can't find work. So how can you sit up there and tell us that like, if we participate, if we vote, if we engage in civic engagement, like things are going to get better. Yeah. And like it, it was so important. It was such an important push because like that was also the experience that I knew a lot of our communities get treated like we're bodies and numbers and like, don't actually get engaged and like, thoughtful um, and real enough ways. It was a real push. And so I started diving in more deeply, particularly in Detroit, getting to know organizations in Detroit. I was 25 years old when I took over as executive director. I had really worked hard, build all of this capacity, buy-in commitment among local organizations that were willing to do voter engagement work and have like voter organizing plans and programs. And when it came down to it, we regranted a lot of money, but we didn't have a whole lot of agency in that. And a lot of funders were actually much more interested in efficiency than they were in power. <laughs> and so I was seeing this in really clear ways. It was really started to feel like, wait a minute, this is, this is just building sandcastles. Like they cared much more about an organization's ability to have an efficient dollar per door than they did around like investing in building organizing when did that really hit you? There was some analysis that I was starting to feel that way in 2011, 2012, as like, you know, we were diving more deeply into some of the election work, but I think it was really hitting me. But I had an experience a couple years prior where I had done this thing called the distance learning course. <laughs> it sharpened like some of my, my yeah. thoughts and ideas of, of organizing and building constituency and what that meant and what that looked like. And I was getting drawn more and more toward toward that work and frankly getting a little disillusioned with like, wait a minute, like we're getting treated like in, in a state like Michigan that is electorally important that, you know, we're prioritizing mobilizing entirely over organizing. Yeah, yeah. We're building sandcastles, you know, that are, you know, that are about moving bodies and numbers, but not about building strong foundations of leadership that have the strength to fight over time. And that was, that was just very clear to me. And so, you know, it was at that point that I was like starting to decide, you know what, I I need to take a step back from this work and like dig into like, well, what, what is like the rigor and discipline of change look like? Like, what does that look like? And that, you know, that's when, you know, I had uh, applied and we started 
talking a little bit more and, and came out to the Kennedy School. So it was, it was after kind of that experience at the same time that I was growing a little bit frustrated with like, we got to be doing something to actually build the power that's going to transform the politics of this state. Yeah. Not for the sake of transforming the politics, but people in communities like Flint can live with dignity. I mean, that distance learning class, it had a big impact. And then that's when I, you know, decided, you know what, I'm going to apply. And Dan Grandoni was really one of the people who was like, you got this. Like, you can, you know, like you, you know, you should like, yeah, you, of course, like you would pick great. And like all like, you know, cause I was like, you know, I'm an organizer from Flint and this was Harvard when I came to the, to the Kennedy school, it was like, look, I'm doing this for home. (laughs) Like I want to, I got to dig into some stuff here. That's going to help, you know, bring it back you know, our work together and like doing all the stuff and building, grappling with leading change network and diving yeah. into like the pedagogy and curriculum and the course and then thinking about the training and all that. Like for me, it was, it, it was like it, so important for shaping it, but it was like building upon all of these foundations from like growing up in Flint and growing up in the labor movement and trying and failing and doing all of these things. And for me, it was like always in the spirit of home and home like in the idea of like the promise of like what our society could be. Cause that, that's what home was to my family. Yeah. Flint was the place for working people and it was the place for working people because working people struggled to demand it. Being able to do that and then come back home and build the organization that we're building now is like, this is home. No, it's beautiful. Then made the move back to Flint. Yeah. And I'll, I'll share just briefly kind of like some of the story there. I mean, my friend Wani uh, that I grew up with called me and she had just left the house of an undocumented family on the east side of the city of Flint. And she said, they just found out about the water crisis when President Obama declared a state of emergency. They tried to go get water from one of these official distribution centers that the state had set up, but um, they got turned away because they didn't have ID because undocumented people got their IDs taken away in 2008. Um, and ICE had raided the grocery store in their neighborhood two weeks prior, so it would have been a week after Christmas. You know, they they had an 11-month-old. The mom had been drinking the water and breastfeeding, um, and their kid was sick, and the weight of it was just hitting them that for the entire life of, of this kid, you know, the water has been tainted, and, like, our kid is sick, and the, the weight of it was just hitting them. For me, I was sitting there, and, like, you know, I, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It was so visceral because it was the same neighborhood that my family moved to in the 40s and 50s. As this is a beacon of hope. And this was a family not dissimilar from my own that wasn't looking for a union job or a functional education system. They were just looking for clean water for their kid, and they, there weren't plausible ways to get it. And so yeah. uh, and I went to Logan Airport, and I got on a flight standby and came home that night and stayed for about eight months. Um, yeah you know, really dug into that. But, but for me, that experience, it was just so clear that like what was going on was a crisis of power. It wasn't just a political mistake. It wasn't a policy mistake. It wasn't a natural disaster. It wasn't the consequences of an election or two. It was a crisis of power. Our communities didn't have enough power to demand the dignity we deserve. And it wasn't just Flint and it wasn't just water. And in a lot of ways, that was the roots of me ultimately deciding you know, a bit over a year later to leave, to take the risk to launch We the People. The significance of home looms again and again, but it's almost like the call back to Flint is almost like a biblical kind of thing of, of, of a kind of return to home in this time of deep crisis. And then it's sort of like regrounding yourself all over again in a way, having, you know, been off, learned about the world, now I'm coming back 
and I'm going to transform the world in which I grew up. For me, I, I was doing, I did, came back home when I did five months of one-to-ones, just got in my car and just met with people everywhere, all over the state, rural parts of the state, suburbs, cities, um, up northern Michigan, up in the UP, west side of the state, I-75 corridor, Flint, Pontiac, Detroit, just meeting with people, um, listening, um, hearing how they were fighting, what was going on. And I think for me, like our work is about saying, how do we actually like build the depth, build the real organizing capacity necessary to allow people to feel their own power and agency in the things that they need to fight on in their communities, but also build the relationships and trust across race and across community that is going to be critical if we're actually going to build something real here and across the United States. Where do you see the work going? Here we are in this moment of national crisis. We're in the middle of an impeachment. We have the <clears throat> presidential election coming up. This is a fluid moment. So where do, you, where do you see this going for you, Art? You know, we've spent the last two and a half years building a whole lot of organizing capacity in places across the state where people have driven local campaigns, doing things like getting progressive women elected to, you know, uh, county and municipal seats in rural parts of the state that people are like they could never win there working with undocumented folks to do things like pressure, you know, the, uh, a county sheriff to end ice holds in that county. And then when he goes back on his word almost a year later, have the strength and resilience to, to come back and fight back and hold that person accountable. We're building some of the kind of relationships and trust with a broader ecosystem of organizations, because I don't think we the people won't transform the politics of Michigan, not, not alone. But we have to build a healthy ecosystem of organizations and leaders that actually trust each other um, and can advance, you know, what this work looks like over time. You know, so far, we've been building this in ways that have felt deep and really real. And, you know, we went from being an organization that was just me kind of bouncing around doing one-to-ones to, you know, a space where we have we're about to have our hire our 14th staff member um, and we have uh, we're kind of helping support organizing and campaigns that are happening all across the state. And 2020 is a big, a big year for sure. Um, And for us, what that means is it's also an opportunity to show that the deep work that's rooted in relationships, it's rooted in building power with folks that's rooted um, in having some of the conversations that we must have, particularly around race and class. These things can allow us to build the power that we need to build in an election year like 2020. So, you know, we're, we're kind of dug in and focused um, on that, driving a bunch of different campaigns. But I think most importantly is like, we're starting to try and shift what the culture needs to be and look like to build real organizing culture um, here in a place like Michigan. Well, congratulations Art, on, all, on all that you've been doing. And thank you even for more for what you will do uh, and the direction in which you're taking your community and, and, and the country. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this and good luck. Yeah, no, well, thank you so much, Marshall. And, you know, I have just so much gratitude and admiration for, you know, the mentorship and friendship that you've given, given to me. And I think in the, the community that you've helped to facilitate and, you know, from kicking my ass as a student on comments on, on papers to being a thought partner in pedagogy to, you know, marrying my wife and I, like, you know, I just, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful that 
you know, I'm able to get some of the wisdom and lessons that you've learned with a whole community of people that you've built and movements that you've been a part of and see, you know, our work as part of that lineage. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm well, grateful for you too, Marshall. Well, the gratitude runs in both directions. Well, thanks a lot, Marshall. Thanks for joining us for our Faces of Change podcast with Art Reyes III. If you'd like to learn the tools to organize and lead change in your community like Art, you can do this through the Leading Change Network. Jump onto LCN's website to learn more. Coming up next month, we meet Mariali Cárdenas, the co-founder of Via Educación, the trailblazing civil society organization that's on a mission to empower children and youth across Mexico to participate in democracy and shape their communities. Using community organizing and innovative educational methods, their approach has been adopted as part of Mexico's national curriculum. Until then, wherever in the world you're creating change, thanks for joining us and see you next time.